Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 2, Satanic Music When I was around the age of 12, I remember walking with another kid to the grocery store one day when a car drove by, windows rolled down, hard rock blaring from the stereo speakers. The other kid, Ryan, looked at me gravely and said, that's satanic music. Being the sort of kid that I was, I looked at him with a smirk and said, Really? You don't listen to it. How do you know it's satanic? We stopped walking. He fixed me in his gaze and said, My uncle used to listen to that kind of music. And there's this one band, ACDC, and their singer died. The band had songs about going to hell to party and about how everyone should use drugs and talk to demons and things like that. My uncle said he was pretty sad when the singer died, but a year later, the group put out a new record, and they had this new singer, but the new singer looked and sounded exactly like the old one, and he was singing the song about how he was back. My uncle said that it was pretty obvious that the song was about how he had died, and then Satan brought him back to continue doing the devil's work. Well, I rolled my eyes, and we continued walking. But that story stuck with me, as evidenced by the fact that I still remember it now, 32 years later. I think that part of what gave it its staying power, as silly as I thought the story was and still think it is, was Ryan's insistence that the story of ACDC's satanic reincarnation was true and the distress that it genuinely seemed to cause him. I grew up in a small town north of Modesto, California, in the Central Valley, specifically the San Joaquin Valley. Contrary to what many people outside of California seem to think, the residents of most of California's small towns are primarily Christian, generally conservative, and my friend belonged to one of the local fundamentalist churches. This particular church was known for claiming that anything not from that church was highly suspect, if not, in fact, outright evil. Wicked, satanic things were out there just waiting to assault the godly, who of course were only members of that church, that church alone. As a result, it's no surprise that there were a fair number of people in town who were convinced that horror movies were evil, Dungeons and Dragons was a satanic primer complete with real spells written into it, secular humanists were taking over the world and would soon abolish Christianity, which is actually pretty hilarious if you actually know any real secular humanists, and rock music was, quite literally, music from hell itself. In this context, it's not surprising that Brian Johnson, the singer that replaced Bon Scott in ACDC, was thought by those who were part of this particular Christian subculture to be a reincarnation of Scott. It was obvious that he had been sent by Satan to tempt more souls into hell, while providing the king of hell with a prominent mouthpiece on earth. Of course, Johnson was not only alive, but was already an accomplished musician with an active musical career well before Scott's death. This reincarnation hypothesis is pretty ludicrous, but paranoid subcultures have never been known for their adherence to reality. 
I don't know if Ryan really had an uncle who told him this, as I've since heard the story told by different people in different places. It's entirely possible that multiple people developed this particular hypothesis, helped along by ACDC's lyrics and the fact that Bon Scott and Brian Johnson both sang as if they were in tremendous physical pain. Or at least that's what they always sounded like to me. Regardless, it was one of the claims that tended to serve as evidence of a massive satanic influence on the secular world. Ironically, while rumors of Scott's satanic reincarnation were developing among this subculture, ACDC fans were busy pointing out all of the differences between Scott and Johnson, and arguing over who was better. Two very different subcultures with two very different axes to grind. So it goes. What I did not know at that age, though, was that the stories connecting popular musicians to supernatural and even demonic forces are quite old. In my time working in anthropology, yep, again, that's my day job, I have found that this is actually quite common, even typical, for cultures to ascribe supernatural power to music. It was, perhaps, only natural that the advent of popular music would carry that baggage. In this episode, I have two stories about musicians said to be connected to the unnatural. Story 1. Robert Johnson at the Crossroads This story is one of the great spooky tales of American folklore, and it is a rich story that touches on music, race, class, and religion. While the story itself is almost certainly nothing more than a tall tale woven around a real person, it tells us a good deal about the various fault lines along which American culture is often split. Sometime between the late 1920s and the mid-1930s, shortly before midnight, at a crossroads near Dockery Plantation in Mississippi, a good harmonica player, but lousy guitarist, by the name of Robert Johnson, began a ritual to summon the devil. As part of the ritual, he played his guitar. Shortly after the stroke of midnight, a large man, with skin and clothing as black as coal, approached, took the guitar, tuned it, played a short melody, and handed it back. Johnson began to play again and was shocked to discover that he was now highly skilled. He sounded amazing. He looked for the coal-black man, but that strange person had vanished. Johnson went home and soon discovered that he was now a brilliant guitarist, not just on the guitar that he tuned at the crossroads, but on any guitar that he picked up. Johnson's newfound skill brought him success. He became a popular guitarist and singer at the many juke joints in the American South. He also found himself quite popular with the ladies. But he knew that there was a debt to be paid, and that the devil would quite literally collect his due. In exchange for his talent, Johnson had pledged his soul to the devil, and he would burn for eternity after death. Robert Johnson wrote and performed songs with the usual blues subject matter of hard women, harder working conditions, difficult lives, and the need for relief. But he also wrote and performed other songs. Songs about bad dealings at crossroads. Songs about being pursued by demonic hounds and songs about the devil coming to get him. Some hold that he was writing songs based on the folklore of the region, and the American South certainly has plenty of folklore about which one could write such songs. But others claim that the songs were more personal, that he was trying to tell people about what he had done. One day, in August of 1938, Johnson began behaving strangely. People reported seeing him walking on all fours and howling like a dog. He had been working as a musician at a dance hall in Greenwood, Mississippi at the time, and, despite his odd behavior, he showed up for work that night and performed as normal. 
Later on, he fell ill and suffered from painful convulsions that lasted for three days. Finally, he died. Some say he was poisoned by a jealous husband. Again, he was popular with the ladies, and not all of those ladies were single. Others said that he simply dropped dead without cause. Regardless of how it went down, the stories say that the devil had made good on his part of the bargain, and now expected Robert Johnson to pay the bill. Commentary As I've already said, this is one of the great American spooky tales, a legend of American music and southern folklore. For anyone who thinks that overt connections between popular music and satanic imagery began with heavy metal, well, let me introduce you to the mother genre of all rock music, the blues. Stories like this one surround Robert Johnson, one of the great early figures of the blues. But there are stories of that other musicians, including Tommy Johnson, not to the best of my knowledge related to Robert Johnson, made the same or a similar deal. And blues music often contains satanic imagery and subjects, such as Robert Johnson's own The Devil and Me Blues and Hell Hound on My Trail. Overt Christian imagery and subjects were also, of course, part of both early and modern blues, which makes sense as blues is closely connected to gospel music. Robert Johnson was born in 1911 and died in 1938 at only 27 years old. He had wandered the South as both a musician and as a manual laborer during the 1920s and 30s, with accounts indicating that as a teenager he'd either run away from home or been kicked out by his father. As is typical for an African American in the early 20th century, his life was not well documented, so it's difficult to sort out what's true and what was rumor. One thing that does seem to be certain, however, is that he hung out at juke joints as a young man, where he played the harmonica quite well. However, he wanted to be a guitar player, and was so bad at playing guitar that many musicians, including the iconic bluesman Sun House, recall him, and this is a quote from Sun House, annoying people to death with his attempts to coax any sort of decent sound out of the instrument. And then he vanished for somewhere between six months and a year, and when he reappeared, Sun House recalls being amazed at how skilled a guitar player Johnson had become. Now, I set my version of the story in Dockery, Mississippi, and that is, in my experience, the most common location that people trace it to. But others would place the story in other locations throughout the South. Robert Johnson was a traveling worker and a musician, and there is no shortage of crossroads in the South that could claim to be the location of his Faustian bargain. Of course, the truth probably has less to do with deals made with hell and more to do with hard work and a lot of practice. As noted, Robert Johnson vanished from the juke joints for somewhere between six months and a year. Though the documentation is sparse, he probably traveled for work, possibly with his family. And while doing so, he appears to have found a guitar teacher. The identity of the teacher is unclear, and really there might have been more than one. But most sources point towards a blues musician named Ike Zimmerman filling this role. It's said that the two played guitar at night in cemeteries in order to have a quiet place for practice. Which may explain another variation of the story, where Johnson is said to have made the deal with the devil in the cemetery and not at the crossroads. And of course, he was playing his guitar on a tombstone at the time. Although the story of Robert Johnson is thought of as the prototype of the bargain between the musician and hell, especially by American musicians who may not be familiar with earlier versions, it's not the first such story. Next, I'm going to talk about the 18th century violinist Paganini and his alleged ties to the demonic. Story 2 
Paganini's Phantom Violin. Niccolo Paganini was an extraordinarily influential and flamboyant violinist who rose to fame in the late 1700s. His technical mastery of the instrument is the stuff of legends, inspiring musicians proficient on stringed instruments to push themselves to greater and greater degrees of virtuosity. Paganini's skills at playing and putting on great shows were so well known that they served as the inspiration to his musical descendants nearly a century and a half after his death, at which time rock and roll guitar became a highly technical form of performance in the 1970s. Guitarists including Ingve Malmsteen, Eddie Van Halen, Steve Vai, and Joe Satriani all openly admit a debt to this early master of pre-rock and roll musical virtuosity and showmanship. Paganini's biography is difficult to suss out because it contains a mix of purely invented anecdotes that were either developed to denounce him or were part of his self-promotion, along with the self-destructive superstar stories that tend to belong to the post-1950s music scene in which he seemed to indulge. The mixture of fact and fiction is, if nothing else, fun, and it provides us with another supernaturally infused bit of folk legend. Paganini was born in Genoa, Italy, in 1782. The strange course of his life was probably set into motion early on when he suffered from measles and was thought dead. The young Paganini was placed in a shroud and was about to be buried, but was thankfully discovered to still be alive at the last minute. In time, it would come to be rumored that his mother had been assured by an angel that her son would become the greatest violinist in the world. Of course, another competing rumor said that his mother had made a pact with Satan to ensure her son's greatness. Paganini's first violin teacher was his father a man with a reputation for being overly strict with his son. Later, he was taught by notable musicians of the time, such as Giovanni Servetto and Giacomo Costa. Paganini was so talented that he began composing his own fairly impressive pieces of music at the age of eight. He continued to progress under ever greater teachers. Those who doubted the stories of his mother's dealings with either angels or demons often claimed that it was during his teenage years that Paganini himself made a pact with Satan to ensure his status as a great violinist. Paganini soon discovered that he could make a living for himself as a concert violinist, and he abandoned his home, and therefore his father, who had become increasingly harsh towards the boy. He soon found himself in a position very much like a modern rock star. Money was available, as was drink, and the company of willing women. He cultivated a distinct appearance with shoulder-length hair, a gaunt body, and black suits. He is said to have been frightening to behold. He became a compulsive gambler and only stopped when he nearly lost a valuable violin. He had a reputation for seducing women whenever possible, though he vanished from public view for a period of four years, and there is evidence that he spent that time living with a noblewoman with whom he had fallen in love. As time went on, Paganini's popularity grew, and some people, including many of his admirers, began to spread stories about him. In addition to the claims of his or his mother's pact with Satan, a story that he was actually the son of a demon began to circulate. At least one concert grower claimed to have seen Satan helping Paganini play on stage. Like Robert Johnson, Paganini saw his own hard work credited to the supernatural. It's been claimed that people would cross themselves when they saw Paganini in the streets, and that men in London would poke him with their canes to determine whether he was real or simply a phantasm. Needless to say, just as rumors of satanic influence would help 20th century rock acts such as Kiss and Ozzy Osbourne, and as mentioned in the intro, ACDC, they turned out to be of great financial benefit to Paganini as well. He may or may not have encouraged these types of stories, but either way, he certainly benefited from them. 
Paganini died in 1840 at the age of 57. Either because of the controversies that had surrounded him in life, or because he had refused last rites before death, the church refused to allow his body to be buried in consecrated ground. The body was temporarily interred at an abandoned leper house, or, according to some accounts, his family's basement, or even an olive oil factory. While the body was housed in this facility and was waiting burial, passing fishermen claimed to have heard the sounds of a violin playing. These additions moved Paganini's story out of the realm of the flamboyant showman and celebrity and into the realm of the ghost story. His body was eventually moved to Parma, but the mysterious violin playing seemed to have followed, with more accounts of people hearing the music near his body until he was finally buried in the Parma Cemetery two years later. In 1926, his remains were moved to his native Genoa. Commentary. The story of his phantom music playing at Paganini's first burial place is interesting to me for two reasons. The first is that the reasons given for the treatment of his remains vary and reflect the religion of the day. Was he refused proper burial because he had led a life of sin, what with all the gambling and womanizing? Or because of his rumored pact with Satan? Or because he had refused last rites? The most likely explanation is probably a combination of all three. He had, in fact, refused last rites, reportedly because he thought he wasn't dying yet. And it's not as if the church is above finding a technicality in order to deny a proper burial to a figure who had led a life that generated a good deal of controversy. Of course, most of the less researched and more sensationalistic stories point to his alleged demonic ties, but this seems a little far-fetched, though it does make for a really great story. The other interesting thing about the phantom music is that it appears to be symbolic of Paganini not being at rest in consecrated ground. Remember, his body was stored somewhere far less dignified, next to a factory, in a leper house, in his family's basement, and so on. And thus, it does make a sort of sense that people who believe strongly in the idea of a proper versus improper burial and consecrated ground for those burials would report that the music was mournful. The music is not reputed to have been heard after the body had been moved to a proper place of burial. In this sense, it seems to be indicative of the religion of the time, with Paganini suffering until his remains were treated correctly and buried in ground blessed by the Roman Catholic Church. This is, interestingly, not too far off from a lot of ancient Roman and Greek beliefs about death. In a sense, the story also contradicts the rightness of Paganini's life. Since he had lived his life flouting the church's rules, he was denied true peace. The fact that the mournful music stopped when he was finally in a blessed bit of dirt just proved the church to be correct. But even before the ghostly music and extending past Paganini to Robert Johnson and beyond, we have the motif of a musician with a skill that was either given, bargained for, or caused by supernatural intervention. What does this say about us as a society that we cannot wrap our minds around someone whose musical prowess is a product of talent combined with hard-earned skill? Is it any wonder that genius is often mistaken for madness or demonic possession? And then there's the issue of musical acts leaning into that sort of narrative. Personally, I would want my skill to be acknowledged as mine, proper credit and all. But the adage of there being no bad press is to a degree true, and the bands that foster an evil persona or outright play up their devilish tendencies are tapping into both the sort of counterculture rejection of social mores and norms 
and also setting themselves up to be seen as more than just talented or skilled. They're chosen. Chosen by Satan and evil, maybe, but still chosen. I have a feeling that these sorts of things say an awful lot about the society in which they thrive. Still, while I find the idea that these musicians were empowered by infernal packs a bit hard to swallow, the fact is that the life of a traveling professional musician, even a wealthy and popular one, can be difficult. Even if you own property, traveling frequently can keep you from having a real home, as most of us would understand it. And the stories of bands becoming frayed and frustrated with themselves and with their road crew are readily available for anyone who looks. I have often wondered to what degree the alcohol and drug abuse often described among high-profile musicians might grow out of a need to keep their own personal but very mundane demons at bay. And coming back for a moment to ACDC, while I don't believe that Satan had blessed them, or cursed them depending on how you look at it, there was a darkness lurking there nonetheless. In 2015, drummer Phil Rudd was convicted of conspiring to arrange the murder of a man against whom he had a grudge. He had offered huge sums of money, property, and luxury goods to a friend if that friend would agree to have Rudd's target killed. Far from being acolytes of evil, as the members of Ryan's childhood church would have anticipated, most of the ACDC fans I knew were devastated by this, and wondered how someone so intimately connected to music that had brought them such pleasure could do something so vile. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghostthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky!